Yes, people, how are we all doing? I hope everyone's doing well. Welcome back to Process, a podcast with myself, Brendan Pearson. So today's guest is Mr. Peter Ramage. So if you don't know who Peter Ramage is, he is an ex-professional footballer, played over 50 games in the Premier League for Newcastle United, also played for a number of different teams like QPR, where he won the championship, and then a number of teams in different countries as well as England. So... So at the time of recording this podcast, Peter was assistant coach of Phoenix Rising over in the States in Arizona, but now he has been transitioned over to England and he is Newcastle under 23 assistant coach, which is why I'm re-recording this little snippet now. So it was a pleasure having him on. Obviously, we dealt with the time differences pretty well. So he was up at six o'clock nice and early to come on here. So thank you, Peter, for coming on. There's loads of things that we talked about with Peter from his time as a young lad, some of the things he learns, some of the things that he's learned from the All Blacks book legacy and their mentality and team building and how he's transferred that over into his team in Phoenix. We talk about making the most of opportunities as a young lad, don't take things for granted and how he dealt with injuries as well explaining how sometimes you do need to hit the reset button, take a step back so you can take them extra steps forward. There's a few different things that we also talk about, about high pressure situations. Obviously, playing in the Premier League is very, very high pressure and how he coped with that. There was plenty of things that we also wanted to discuss, but we ran out of time at the end. So, we'll get on with the episode. This is Process. Yes, people, welcome back to Process. Today, we're joined by a very special guest all the way from the other side of the world, over the pond, as they call it, isn't it? Over the pond. Mr. (laughs) Peter Ramage, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, mate. Good to see you. Yeah, good to catch up anyway, because obviously we knew you were from Newcastle. You were there coaching a little bit, but you were there as a player. I think you played, was it over 50 Prem appearances? Yeah, 51 Prem appearances, 69 in total. So Yeah, uh, not bad going. Not bad, not bad. (laughs) Not bad going. (laughs) But yeah, so it's good to have you on, because obviously me and David Charlton, the psychologist, done a podcast together, and you also did a podcast with him, and we listened back to it, and there was a lot of good points. So if people haven't already listened to it, definitely check that out. Um, but there were some good points that I wanted to discuss with you. But we'll start off with, obviously, you were at Newcastle United back in the day. How yeah. old were you when you first signed there? Uh, I was 10 when I went in on trial. Um, I went for a six-week trial. I started, I was at Berwick-upon-Tweed. That's where I used to live. So I was at oh, Berwick right, yeah. Juniors. Um, so I was coming up and down the road. My granddad was driving me down, picked me up straight after school, driving me down for my six-week trial. And then... Fortunately enough, got asked to stay, um, and the rest is history, as they say. You know, so from yeah. from about eleven year old, I was um, you know officially a Newcastle United kind of junior. Yeah, so you're always a Newcastle fan when you're younger as well. Yeah, my aunties, um, my aunties had season tickets for, for God longer than I've been alive. Uh, still got them now in the East Stand. Um, so when I was growing up, I was forever badgering to go to the games. I mean, football as you know, you well know it's it's life and it's the yeah. life and bread of everything back home. And yeah, I was a Newcastle fan from literally the moment I was uh, I was able to walk and talk. Yeah, it's pretty much the same, especially I think the northeast. A lot of like young, it's just like born and bred in here. Like everybody's either like like born and bred football, and maybe you get one or two people who are like rugby, but majority of the time it's football, isn't it? Newcastle <laughs> especially, but majority of the time anyway. So you were there in Newcastle for a number of years. So. When, what was the system like when you were there? Because I know obviously it's changed over the years in terms of the academy setup. But when you first went in, was it 
was it a similar setup to what it is now at that age? And then obviously you progressed to your scholarship and stuff. Is it the same sort of setup? Was it completely different back then? Um, somewhat the same, somewhat different, if that makes sense. Because we were, I mean, I know nowadays the academy, I think you're given kind of like two-year deals, yeah. you know, throughout the system. So you're given time to try and progress. Mm-hmm. Whereas back then it was year by year. And even then, you know, you could be released at, you know, the drop of a hat. There wasn't really any kind of signed paperwork, so to speak. Um, so that, that was a little bit different. But then when you go into the actual academy system from, like, it was under, it was under 17s and under 19s back in my day. So it wasn't like 18s and 23s. But it was a different world to what it is now. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, we had, I mean, first and foremost, facilities wise, we trained at Maiden Castle. So, yeah. you know, it's down at Durham, which is, uh, wasn't exactly the most uh, forgiving of environments, you know. Yeah, it was literally, you were shared, your, you know, you shared the dressing room, shared everything with, you know, the university. So you had students walking around the place, you know, the canteen, you had people popping in and out for cups of teas and coffees. It's not like, you know, what we have now at Newcastle, mm-hmm. but also in terms of your own um, environment and that, you know, we had, I know we, we discussed this, we had, you know, we had jobs. Yeah. Um, we had to clean boots. We had to clean equipment. We had to put the goals out. We didn't. We didn't have people to help us do all this stuff. But it was part of our education was to, you know, kind of look after yourself, um, look after your equipment, look after the environment, look after the coaches. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't done, you know, there was punishments. You know, yeah. I mean, we we were Al Nervine was the the academy director back then, and still to this day, probably one of the best educators I've ever come across, and from both you know, teaching at school and as a coach is from football. Mm-hmm. He was, um, he ruled with an iron fist, but it was all for your benefit to make you a stronger person, make you more grounded, make you more humble, um, but also make you more hard work and to be able to, you know, get yourself out of that academy environment and get into the first team where you didn't have to, you know, pick up sloggies from the floor and sweep the dressing room and yeah. clean his boots and things like that. <laughs> but it was just... Uh, it was just all to try and make you ready to, you know, to go into the big bad world. Yeah, I think like it has changed so much since then. Cause like, even when I, I expected to kind of go into that environment, like you hear the likes of like yourself talking about it, and then um, was it the class of '97 that like that obviously Gary Nell was a bet. So they always talk about it how like when they were they were like apprentices or scholars or whatever you call it, they were just like. I think there was a point, was it not Gary Neville got like put in a washing machine or something like that he talks about, but like, <laughs> don't always, you're always kind of like, not so much picked on, but you were, you were kind of dealt these jobs and you had to go and do the dirty work and scrub boots and stuff like that. But I remember when I went in, we didn't really have to do that. I was kind of looking forward to that. Like the fact that I used to maybe sometimes get a pro's football boots to clean for the season. Like that was a kind of an old school thing. We never really got that. Um, I know well, some the, clubs did. Yeah. I mean, that. so that was the thing because, we trained, the first team trained at a different environment. They trained at Chesler Street. Um, so we didn't get first team's books, but you had to you had to do the job. And what he ended up doing is he ended up helping like the other lads because, like, so, excuse me, one of the jobs could have been simply going to the groundsman and saying, right, Al needs, one, Al needs two, coaches, uh, two goals. Kenny, Kenny Wharton needs one goal. You know, we had um, Adam Sadler, the goalkeeper coach. Sads needs three goals. And that was your job done. So you would go in, tell the grounds how many goals you needed. He would go and put them out. And then that was it. But then yeah. you had guys who had to like sweep the dressing rooms and make sure the showers were clean after every day. So their job was like at the end of the day. Well, Durham and Newcastle, 
in the middle of rush hour, you could be getting home at seven o'clock at night. Do you know what I mean? It's like it, you could get caught in that A1 traffic going around like the, or going over the bridge. So at the end of the day, the geezers who were like had the, the jobs first thing in the morning were helping the guys at the end of the day because uh-huh. everybody wanted to get home and yeah. you weren't allowed to leave until every single job was done. And Al or Kenny or Neil Metcalf, who was a physio at the time, they would go around and they would make sure that every job was done. And then Paul Brogan, who was the bus driver, would be like, right, Brogs, they're ready to go. So he ended up helping him. So it brought a bit of camaraderie towards the dressing room too, because you're like, you're all working as one to try and, to be honest with you, get out of there. You know, (laughs) you didn't want to stay there because at the end of the day, I mean, you were, like I said, we had to get to St. James's for quarter eight in the morning. Uh, Quarter nine in the morning, the bus left. And if you weren't on the bus at quarter nine, Brogues would just leave you. Yeah. So, but like me and Belly, Carl Bell, we were getting up and I was down at Carl's at seven o'clock to get the Metro to get into town. So we weren't getting home till eight, nine o'clock at night. And then I was getting up at six o'clock the next morning to get on the Metro to get into the town. So you start helping each other. So build, I mean, I still talk to probably more of the guys now from that era than I do from any of the other time. Uh, throughout my career just purely because you built up these friendships through doing jobs and, and helping each other out yeah I think like, some of the things you said there I think that's kind of missed in the modern day because I remember when I first went in my first year apprentice we kind of had a few of them jobs and there was a we had we had old school coaches we had Dave Watson and Kevin Richardson and like they, them two wouldn't let you miss jobs and stuff so we had that which was quite good and I feel like the all the I don't know if it was the, the coaches changing or whatever it was with down the line it kind of like got a little bit more slack and then lads start to complain about jobs and jobs wouldn't get done and maybe there was one or two lads who used to do all the jobs because they knew that they, they, they wanted to get home and there was lads who just sat around on the sofas just waiting for them jobs to get done and there wasn't so much that team aspect which I think is probably more common these days like the lads would kind of get a lot more done for them like them jobs like sweeping the dressing room and stuff like that I remember like as the years went by I remember the dressing room was just a tip and I was just thinking like there's going to be a, there's, like where's the team kind of like like you on about respect and stuff like that for the fact that we're in full time, we're getting so much done for us. Why can't we just keep our dressing room kind of clean? It's like little things like that, um, which I think your eras probably they were taught that at a young age, whereas a lot of the lads don't really get that sometimes, especially when they get given a lot of stuff at a young age. Yeah, I mean that's a big thing that we're trying to implement here at Phoenix as well is that you know we have a we have a notice board that it's called Sweep the Shed. I know we referenced it before yeah. we, we came on air here, but like from the book Legacy, the New Zealand one, um, we've done a lot of research over the last probably two years. Uh, and obviously one of the biggest things that New Zealand have is, and excuse my French, but they, they have no dickheads. Yeah. It's one of their big, that's, their big... Yeah, that's actually their, their quote as well, isn't it? It's, it's their quote, the yeah. quote. Uh, yeah, so no dickheads. So we have that kind of thing here. Whereas every player goes on like a rotation. He's got to clean the dressing room after every every day because we train at the same like it's all one facility so and it's been incredible to see the guys buy into it mm-hmm. and now I mean we don't have the staff in the you know the like the academy the cast that have so when we go on away trips and we're flying here there and everywhere guys all of a sudden are picking up a bag and putting it on the bus and they're helping you know the kit man he's only one guy but he's got I think he's got 18 bags that he's got to like transport well everybody's picking up a bag and everybody's helping, and everybody, and I, and I, and I th- I'm a big believer in that. That's been a, a part of our success over the last two years that I've I've been here anyway. Is that, you know, we've got these kind of unseen tangibles that the players have bought into, and 
they're now policing it themselves. So, you know, we don't find the boys anymore because mm. they find themselves. Like if the dressing room's not clean the next day or the, the, when they come in the next day, the person whose day it was, he's fined and they've got to spin the wheel. But now that's kind of bringing a little bit of humor, a little yeah. bit of camaraderie, camaraderie amongst themselves. You know, there might be one guy who's, you know, he's got to take his daughter to a, a doctor's appointment. It's his turn. He's like, can I swap with you? Like, you're tomorrow. Can I do? And so that, or can you help us? So it's starting to build up relationships. And it's been great to see that the guys have bought into it. And like I said, I think it's been one of the big reasons as to why, you know, we've been successful. And when you're trying to sell it to the boys and you said, right, New Zealand, they've got a 93% win, win percent ratio over the last... God knows how many years. It's easy to buy in when you've got proof that that it works. So, yeah. and I think that's what's missing in academy systems at this moment. I mean, I know that obviously you can't do some of the jobs for for whatever reasons, but I do think there's some things that we can do to help these guys get ready because not everybody's going to become a professional footballer and earn a hundred grand a week. They're going to go and have to work nine or five in an office where these kind of things are going to be expected of them. So if it's bought into them or instilled into them from a young and early age, when it comes to going to do that job because for whatever reason your career didn't work, I think it's going to be easier to make that transition into normal work and life because you've kind of got them things instilled in you. Yeah, I know. Um, I, think, I think that's what I think a lot of the topics that I talk about with people, like I've had a few young lads on and like the transition out of football is so much of a hit and a shock to them. Like, even for me, I talk about, like, a simple little little thing, like, the first time I had to do an eight-hour shift. <laughs> like, that was just, like, <laughs> I was like, what's this? Like, an eight-hour shift work? And I came home, and my girlfriend, she's a nurse, and she does, like, 13 hours. She was just, she's on night shift at the minute. She does long shifts, and wow. she comes home, she's fine. And I'm, and I'm like, shut up an eight-hour shift, or, like, a nine-hour shift. And, I'm, and she's like, oh, I do this, like, five days a week. And it's just a completely different world of football. <laughs> Like even like back in the day when you were saying you were getting up at six and you went home till seven, like that wasn't really happening. Didn't really happen. But to us, I think the longest, I think the long, longer days were when you were injured. Like you were in early and then you obviously finished yeah. it just for being injured. But most of the time, it was like in at nine o'clock, have your breakfast, train at like ten thirty, and then you're like in the season. You'd maybe sometimes do a gym session. You'd be away by two half two, and then that's your kind of your day. Which is probably why when lads go to have their real world jobs, like. It's, it's a shock for them and they maybe struggle and they maybe like can't deal with it and or go down certain routes and they can't cope with it. So I think I put a little thing on the notes about it, trying to instill some sort of work mentality in young lads because I think a lot of them leave school going to football and they think like, all right, I'm just going to go and kick a football around for the rest of the day and then I'm going to go home and sit on my Xbox and play with my mates, something like that, which is what it is for a lot of lads. Like that's the, that's the life and that's maybe what they see like, with the top pros, which it is because they only train in the morning and they kind of have the afternoon to chill uh, a lot of the time. But the reality is, like, one, you might, there's only a small percentage that do make it. And two, like, you, you need to be able to have the mentality that you're going to work hard, even do extra little bit of even if it's not working, like, at a shop or at a bar or something like that. Like, putting the extra work in football and making the most of the hours that you've got and the facility that you've got, like, at, at a good yeah. time yourself. And that's the thing. I don't think players, young players nowadays, realise, especially obviously working at Newcastle, what they don't realise what they've got, mm-hmm. because you've got facilities there that set up for you to be a professional footballer. But I don't think players have the mentality to take advantage of that in terms of doing that little bit extra. You know, I, I see you work your nuts off 
when you were coming back from your injury, you were in first thing in the morning and you were the last one out at night trying. And I don't think many people have that mentality to look back and if they haven't made it, be like, well, you know what it is? It was just because I weren't good enough. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because, you know, I, 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 yeah, I could have done a bit more or should have done a bit more. Like, if you can look back and think, I just wasn't good enough, but I gave it everything I can, then I could, like, personally, I can live myself with the career that I've had, knowing that I didn't get to where I wanted to be. And I have regrets, no doubt about it. I have a, an abundance of regrets. And I don't, I'm a big believer that when people say they don't have any regrets in their career, yes, you do. Yeah, everybody does because you, there's something in your mind. Oh, I just wish I could have maybe if I could have done. Yeah, everybody does, and I certainly have them. But I know that I gave myself every opportunity to try and get to the top. I just weren't good enough, but I tried my best. Um, I had a good career, but I do think I could have personally done a lot more to be able to stay there. And that was just purely down to me, probably not wanting it as much or not taking advantage of the, the, the opportunity that I had. And I think that's a big thing nowadays. And, you know, I listened to Chris Wilder, who done the interview the other day about when he goes to the pub. And that's, that's in a nutshell, that's what the 99.99% of players who didn't make it, that's their attitude. It was like, oh, you know, I got an injury here or yeah. it just didn't work out. No, it's because you didn't work hard enough. Mm-hmm. You didn't have the mentality that I was going to make it. You just kind of... Uh, yeah, I'll just accept that I wasn't, yeah. you know, I didn't make it. And I think that's a big problem with young players nowadays. Now there is the, the odd one or two that that you see and that's coming through. And, and Man United is a classic example of the players continually coming through and becoming international superstars that they have that mentality that's instilled. And like you said, from, you know, the class of 92. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like some of the things you said there about, you were saying you had a lot of regrets and stuff like that. You probably don't, at the time, you probably didn't realise it, but it takes it like a year or two years or five years down the line for you to look back and all the things that you wouldn't have been, you wouldn't be saying that if you hadn't learned the lessons you've learned. You've probably picked all the things that you didn't do well when you were younger and put them into your life now, which is why you may be passing it on to like your, your players, like, like you have it, you've instilled this kind yeah. of attitude into your players. Yeah, 100%. Brendan, I mean, I was at Newcastle at a time where I had a great opportunity that, I didn't take full advantage of. I just kind of, and you know, one of the things I said were like, to Dave early on in that podcast was that I regret not being a man. I stayed mm-hmm. as a boy even through my time there. I kind of just accepted things. You know, if I wasn't playing or I was dropped, yeah, okay, no worries. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll work. I'll work harder to try and get in the team instead of being no, like I'm going to be bloody minded and be like, no, I'm going to work even harder. And that was one of my biggest regrets at Newcastle is that I kind of just accepted my role. Like, I was a squad player. I was never a first-teamer. I never really fully accepted myself as like a, a first-team player at Newcastle. I was a squad player. And I think that was one of a huge regret of mine is that I didn't... You know, Stephen Taylor was, was the opposite to me. Yeah. Tails was... A character, anyway. A character, yeah. yeah. But he had that menta- mentality that he... He knew what he wanted. He wanted to be the number one centre-back in Newcastle. And he worked his socks off. And yeah, he's Marmite. People love him or hate him. But he played for Newcastle for 10 or 10 plus years in the yeah. first team. And that takes some strength of character to be able to do that. And I admire him and I revere him for doing that. But I also kick myself that I wasn't a little bit more like that. 
and that I just accepted it. And when it came to leaving, I was like, no, I, I, I should have signed that extra year and I should have proved myself, but I just accepted things. And it was one of the, it, I, mentally I struggle. I've struggled with that since leaving. Uh, that, and I don't think I really got myself out of that mentality until I was into my 30s. You know, I, I kind of just accepted things through my career and it's one of the biggest regrets of my time is that, you know, I could have achieved a lot more. I achieved a hell of a career. I had a, a hell of a career by, in my eyes. Mm-hmm. But I think that if I'd been a little bit more uh, selfish in my mentality, that I could have I could have done more. And again, I might have had a better career. Who knows? I might have played more games in the Premier League. Who knows? But it's something that I'll always think back and think, what if? Yeah, I know. You can always think like that, but you did have a great career. You obviously went on to better things, but you've, like I said before, you've took all them things that you've learned and now you're passing them on. And like, it is hard as a young lad. Like I was the same, like when you're a young lad and if your personality, you're quite maybe like intrinsic or you're quite like, keep yourself to yourself. It is hard to be that kind of person to go to the manager's office and knock on his door. Like I've went to do it before and then just be like, nah, fuck that, I'm not doing that. I'll, <laughs> I'll do it tomorrow sort of thing. Like it is, it's, it's that- best. Like 17, 18 year old, you're not playing on, on a Saturday, even, or like you maybe you feel like you're trading better than somebody and you're not getting a chance at the reserves. <coughs> like it's hard to it, to build that bravery up. It's a terrifying thing. Like even if the coach isn't really like a scary per, like person, it's still like you get a bit nervous and stuff. But I say to the lads that like, you, you have to do it. And I say it on the other side as well. If you're like maybe if you feel a bit tired or you have a few injuries and stuff like that, like because I feel like the young lads especially when they're really young. I remember when I was a scholar, we were training like, like I used to, the keeper coach used to have me out at like half nine, do some kicking, then we'd be out with the team at half 10. Then the afternoon would be out doing some more kicking. And my body, like I just, I think that's a, like obviously I had a lot of injuries. I think my body maybe just can't deal with that amount of volume. So if you do have that sort of like niggles or you're starting to feel stuff, tell a coach and they should be able to like, yeah. they should be able to understand. And it's like, like you just said there, you know, some, some coaches, one of a big role of mine is to be that buffer because I'm only just recently retired, you know, two years retired. I still know what players are going through. So if somebody's quiet, that's not normally quiet. It's like, you all right? What's up? You want to talk? You know, you kind of, and players have got to find that person. Like some players can go to the manager's office and can, you know, knock on the door and be like, well, why aren't I playing? Or what do I need? Like the biggest thing I say now is don't go in and ask why aren't I playing? What can I do to get in the team? Do you know, coaches, and it's something I've learned, coaches hate asked why aren't I in the team? Because it's like, it's an, e- it's an easy question for us to answer. It's like, you ain't trained hard enough. So mm-hmm. if you come in and be like, what do I need to do to get in the team? You know, what do I need to work on? What do I need to concentrate on this week? Or what do I, you know, how, you know, what's he doing that, that I need to implement in my game? And, but it's, it's having the, to be honest with you, excuse my friend, it's having the bollocks to just talk. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're feeling tired, listen, coach, uh, I just ain't feeling great today. You know, mm-hmm. yesterday took it out of me and I, I don't feel great. Going to a physio and just saying that and then he can relay the information. It's just one of the biggest things that, that I suffered with and, I, and it, like after my second cruciate, um, I had like a lot of mental struggles with my, my, myself and whether my body was going to be able to handle playing football again. Um, just being able to go and talk. Like the second one, the, the first one when I was at Newcastle was okay because I was the unknown. I didn't mm-hmm. know what things were going to, how things were going to transpire, but I always had faith that I was going to come back because I had, 
you know, some of the best physios in the game at Newcastle with Derek Wright, Paul Ferris, people like that, Kevin Bell, who, you know, got me through my injury. But the second one, like, that's two ACLs now. I'm thinking, am I going to be the same? And when I was coming back, I was having a lot of self-doubts that my body was going to be able to handle playing. I mean, I was at QPR in the championship, whether I was going to be able to come back. And I just bottled things up. And it was not until I went to Barnsley and worked with Danny Wilson, who kind of seen that in me. I mean, like, you need to go and speak to somebody. And I was yeah. like, I, I, it, back then, I mean, this was, what, 2013. Wasn't really thought about to be able to go and talk. Do you yeah. know, there was a stigma attached. It was like, and I wasn't having mental problems. I was just having a lot of self-doubt. But then I started going to talk to somebody. And it was just, sometimes it was just a cup of coffee. And we were just, you know, chatting away. And then all of a sudden, the, the conversation was sliding down that route before I even knew it. Yeah. And I was coming out and I was feeling better about myself. And, and I think that's, for young kids nowadays, uh, it's key that they have that support network from that side of things because mm-hmm. you can be out of the game, you know, and with all due respect to like yourself, an injury could finish your career. Mm-hmm. And that's a hell of a thing to try to deal with. Yeah. And young guys who have these aspirations, all of a sudden, it's just gone. It's a tough thing to take. So having that courage to go and talk to people, and that's the biggest thing. Like one of my core values is having the courage to just speak, having the courage to go and work, just having courage in general. I mean, there's a lot of things that could be stig- attached to it, but um, just having the courage to go and like chat to people about whatever it is to be able mm-hmm. to help you to try and get to that next stage or get to that, past that barrier or, you know, getting a bag of balls and having the courage to go out and practice whatever it is to practice. It's, it's a big thing for me at this moment in time is that I wish I had that again when I was a lot younger. Yeah, I think we'll touch on your injuries and stuff, but a good point you made there was like obviously having the courage, but you, you can tell that you're very mindful because you've, what have you, what, cause what you've been through yourself, you know what lads in your position feel like. And like you said, if the lad's quiet, then who knows he isn't quiet? You're mindful enough to go and say to them, like, is everything all right? But I think a lot of coaches, especially you talk about your old school ones, that I don't think, they, they're not in that mentality that I think, and like, what the fuck's wrong with him? Being like, he's yeah. in a huff today kind of thing. Like, they're not, like, I think coaches, I think the modern day coaches are probably a little bit more better at that because of what psychology and obviously talking about depression and stuff like that. That's a lot more kind of prominent in the world today. So people are mo- a lot more switched on to it. So like, if you are a coach or even like a parent, if you see your kids like having a, a, a down week or even a down like month, like some people have like a long period where they're down, have a word of them, like, if maybe the form's dropped, there might be a reason mentally. It might not be like a physical thing and there might not be like, oh, but he's not asked about playing at the minute. He's His head's somewhere else. It might be something like deep down, like it could be anything, like something happening at home, some of his friends, or maybe the fact that he's not playing well is getting him down even more because there's so many mental things, especially when you're a young lad and if you don't have that confidence, like having confidence in football is probably just as important having ability, I feel. Like if you're a confident lad, 100%. Like, and you go on a pitch feeling good. That's why I'm such a believer in, like, looking good, feel good, play good. That's a little thing that... That's why one of the reasons I, like, I enjoyed in the gym, because it made me feel good, and, like, I wanted to be yeah. that lad that was, like... like So you look on the pitch, like, fuck me, he's a, he's a beast, which I should have really changed my mentality a little bit. But it, it was, that was my mentality at the time. And, yeah, that's, and, that's, and that's perfect example. Of, like, now I go to the gym for vanity reasons, but I yeah. want to look good. Because if I look good, I'm feeling good. And I can go mm. out and I can, you know, show this back and I can 
portray myself as a confident person. Like every morning, I mean, every morning here, it's great. The weather's unbelievable. But I'm out having a run, going and do yeah. something. But it's, and it is vanity, but it's, it's exactly like you said. Like, I feel good about myself and I feel good and I feel mentally ready to go to work. If I've done something, do you know, mm. I feel mentally fresh. And the days that I don't, like if I have a day off, I'm off. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a tough, it's tougher to get going. But yeah. you made a great point there and something that, you know, we are doing a lot of work with the youth over here and the presentation that we've got actually tomorrow night is, you know, that support network outside of football because I don't know what's going on behind closed doors when the players leave here. And young kids in particular, if something's going on at home that's affecting them on the pitch, then we need to know mm -hmm. because it can affect our relationship as a player to coach. Because yeah. if you're, if we're all going onto the pitch and you aren't performing and then, you know, I'm saying, Brendan, what's going on, mate? Off. Mm -hmm. F off. off. Yeah. Leave us alone. Like, I'm taking that as like, you, there's a problem between me and you, but there's not, yeah. there's actually a problem at home that I need to know about. So then like, I can come to you and be like, you all right, mate? Yeah. yeah. Like, how's things? And then we can work together. And I think that's a key for academy systems as well is that, you have to have, whilst you have to have the player-coach relationship, the coach also has to have a relationship with the parents mm -hmm. and the parents being able to help aid the development of, the, of their son or their daughter or whoever it is, to be able to pick up the phone and be like, listen, like, Brendan's having a bit of a tough time at home at this moment in time. Just Can you just keep an eye on him? Like, yeah. he, and he could be like, oh, God, I didn't know that. Like, He's mm -hmm. been fine. But then there might be little triggers when you think, yeah, all mm -hmm. right. And I think it's key that, you know, to be able to give kids nowadays the best opportunity is that you need to have that whole, the whole package needs to be working together. And if it's not, then that could be a contributing factor to, to somebody not making it or, you know, or even injuries. You know, yeah. you could be leaving here. Yeah, you could be leaving the, the, the gym, uh, sorry, the, the academy and then going and doing your own workouts at home to try and burn off, like, that mental blocking yeah. that's going on. But it's actually going to affect you because you're putting your more stress on your body. Could we, then we could be like, do you know what it is? You ain't going to go to the gym. You're going to come in in the morning and we're going to do a controlled workout. And then like you said, you know, you could, instead of going and doing kicking at 9.30, then join the team and then doing kicking, I could be taking you for like, we could be going and doing a bike to yeah, burn off that else. frustration mm -hmm. that's stopping you from leaving your third session and then going and doing a fourth like at home to burn out that frustration uh -huh. and it's just all working and that's what you know we're a big thing that we're going to talk about like tomorrow night when we have our presentation is that we need to work together to try and help you as a player give yourself the best opportunity yeah i felt that's what i kind of needed a little bit more and i needed kind of like an arm on my shoulder take someone kind of you know, right, Brendan, like, have, have a little chat with us, even to say, oh, we'll have a little cup of coffee. And, like, there was one or two occasions, like, there were some people who were great with that, but I felt like I needed it a bit more. And, like, you talk about, like, like maybe changing the training. Like, the gym was kind of, like, my little little thing to, like, help mentally. Like, help me mentally deal with it and make me feel like I was doing something. Because going in, especially when you're out with a long-term injury, like, going in every day, doing the same routine, doing them little exercises that like you're sitting <laughs> on the floor, move like ankle injuries, moving your ankle up and down. Like, uh, especially when like, you've got to do them with Carl as well. Yeah, you've you know got to do them. You've got to do them with Carl's crap every day as well. But, <laughs> but, 
No, but like stuff like that, it's it's like mentally draining. You feel like you need to do something. That's why I think I found like a little bit of like hope in the gym. And that's why I kind of, like I was up early. Like there was days where I used to go to the gym at half five in the morning before football then come in and then do gym. Like the coaches probably didn't realise that it used to, but I used to because it was like, it got me up in the morning. It gave me like, it gave me that kind of feeling like I'd done something today. Like nobody else was doing what I was doing. So I'm working harder. So I'm pushing myself and it just made me feel good when realistically it probably was doing a bit more damage than it was because like I was getting up early so I was losing sleep I wasn't recovering as much there was like, obviously more like my body needed to recover a lot more than what it should be especially when I had injuries and stuff so if maybe someone said to me look Brendan like I love your attitude like you I love the attitude you do in the gym if we could if if I could help you out and do it a bit more control or we could maybe change a few things up it'll help you long term like you can still do these little things that you like but if we add in a bit of that, I think it's going to help you. Or maybe if you back off and then tomorrow we'll do this. Like just kind of like working with the player rather than just saying, right, no, because there's a lot Alex Kitchen who I've done a podcast with. He's yeah, a PT yeah. now. He got banned from the gym completely. And he would have just, I know, like, because he's, he's seen him now, he's an absolute unit, but he had a lot of injuries as well. But like, I think but, like, people like that who are in that mentality, banning people from something just means they're going to go and do it at home. Like that's that. That's, Exactly, and I think that's a you mean that's a great point. Is that stopping people from doing what they want to do? It's just like I tell my daughters, right? Stop that. Well, what they're gonna do? Uh As soon as you say no to them, they're gonna do it. Rebel. So why not? Exactly. Everybody rebels. Like if somebody tells me that I can't, I've got to, I've got to, like Peter, you can't, you can't get up at five o'clock in the morning. You need your extra hour sleep. What am I gonna? I'm gonna get up at four (laughs) forty-five. You know what I mean? Like you, you, so it's 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 a big thing from a mental standpoint. For for and it's something that I learned throughout my like when I done my second ACL. Is that you got to work with me? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't say no to me. I can't do this. You've got to we've got to work together to to help me mentally get through this long-term injury by allowing me to do what I need to do. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like a big thing for me when I like certainly, but it was Derek Wright through my first I got to a point where he just he knew that I wasn't I I was struggling so he just said get yourself away for two weeks that two weeks ain't gonna make a difference so I flew out to like my best mate uh lived out in San Diego go to San Diego go to America for two weeks just blow out go and get absolutely blotted for two weeks have fun you know your knees fine. You know if you fall over drunk on a night, it's not gonna. You're not gonna retest. Yeah. I got to like physically a point where, like you said just before about doing the same exercises day after day, I was just like I couldn't be bothered. Mm-hmm. So he's like, get yourself away. So then when I done it the second time, I knew what I, I knew what I needed to do. I knew what was coming, but I also knew that I needed two weeks at some point yeah. during that rehab to get away to refresh and come back refocused and ready to go and attack like this injury to make sure that I come back. And that's exactly what I did. As soon as I'd done my ACL at QPR, I said to the physio, we've got to get to a point where I've got to say to you, I need two weeks. And mm-hmm. Neil Warnock, who was the manager at the time, was incredible with that. Mm-hmm. He was like, get yourself away. So I, my mate was still out at San Diego, so I came back out here again, two weeks. Yeah. We went to Vegas, yeah. I had fun. And I came back and it was, it was the best thing for me was that, I got away probably the wrong time in my like in my rehab program where I needed to be kicking on to get back. But I needed that two weeks. And I believe that I got back earlier than the surgeon said because I got, was given them two weeks. Mm-hmm. And that was because I had the relationship with the physio to be like, 
sorry, the training just going away. Uh, to be able, like, we're going to work together. We're going to work together to get you through this injury. Like, I'm not going to say to you, you've got to do this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Three hundred. Well, however many, three months, four months, five months. This is what we're going to No, let's work together. And there were mm-hmm. some days it'd be like, I'd come in and be like, nah, I can't be bothered today. All right, go to the swimming pool. I want you to do 50 lengths. And then I want you to do this. And I'd be like, yeah, all right, that's a different... Yeah, go on, then we'll do that. And it was just... Play a patient. I mean, you know yourself now with your work and like some mm-hmm. guys are going to come to you and be like, can't be bothered to lift them dumbbells today, mate. <laughs> so you had to have to like work with them. And I think that's yeah. a big key with, for me mentally is how I got through the, and particularly through the second ACL was that, you know, me and, and the physio, we worked together on the program and we, yes, we stayed on the same path, but we had a lot, little couple of detours throughout it that kept me mentally fresh and kept me mentally ready to go uh, that mm-hmm. I, so that I could get back and, you know, touch wood. I haven't had any problems since since I've done that. Yeah, no, you you do need to hit that reset button. Like, um, what's it in the basketball documentary? I forgot what's called. Went blank. But Dennis Rodman, he done the same thing. He went. I think I can't remember the coach's name, but he let him go to Vegas for a few days. Yeah, I think he Phil came back. Jackson. He was still home. Yeah, he, he came back and he was still home over. But then, like the next game, he was like top scorer or whatever it is. Like people, some people need that little reset. Like I had it. Like it was more. It probably wasn't the best thing. But after, so when I was playing in Scotland, I'd done my ankle, so I've had all my I had lateral ankle surgery, had a full reconstruction. That was my last injury I had in Scotland. So when I'd done that, I literally booked a flight to Ibiza for like four nights, I think it was. <laughs> Went away, and I, I, I told about it in other podcasts. I had I didn't enjoy it at all because I wasn't in the right mind space. But me doing that flipped the switch in me, and kind of like like I remember because I write a journal every single morning. I had my journal at the time, and I wrote in the morning like. This isn't what you're about. This is, I have to look back on what I, exactly what I wrote, but this is not what you're about. Like, you're better than this kind of thing. And from there, this is when I've kind of started to kind of like progress. I started my PT, started uh, getting clients, started my podcast, and things are just kind of, but you need that. Sometimes you need to have like a real realization moment, which I think that was a big thing for me. And like, obviously, I wasted a bit of money, went away on holiday, and had a crap time. But it was a lesson that. I feel like in my life I needed to learn because it's kind of just like it's flipped the switch. It was a complete reset from that moment onwards. Like my mindset just changed. Literally the whole time when I was injured, I was thinking like, right, I need to get away. I need to get away. I need to get away. And then I got my operation date and the club let me go. And I was like, right, I'm going away before my operation. And then it just reset me completely. And people are probably thinking like, oh, like footballer, you're still getting paid. You can go away on holiday when you want. Like, who do you think you are kind of thing? But people don't understand how mentally draining it can be these long-term injuries. And when you've been in the sport since you were like, what, probably six, seven years old, all the way up to I was 22 when I had an ankle injury, that's been your whole life. And then you get told that if you probably, you might not be able to do it anymore. It's kind of, it is a big hit. It's like almost like losing a family member or like people get upset, like splitting up with a long-term girlfriend or something like that. It's like that sort of like hit. It's like you need to like go through that period of like, remorse or finding something to cope to reset and then move forward with your life and the thing about it's 100% right because it was actually my dad that um, who's one of like a big influencer for me but he said he works at Durham University like he's a project manager he's not an, he's not a teacher or anything like that but something that somebody said to him about who was kind of doing a little bit of research on, on sports stars and, and in particular footballers it's like the success rate of being a footballer and making it is 0.001%, right? 
from when you go in to actually becoming a footballer. Well, what's the success rate for a guy who wants to be an accountant? What's the success rate for a guy? Success rate for the guy who wants to be, you know, like a personal personal trainer? Probably 100 yeah. percent, because there's going to be jobs there. Do you know what I mean? So there's there's a lot. There's a big difference between being the success in a footballer, but how many people players want to be a footballer? Millions. How many people want to be like accountants? Yeah. Millions probably, but not as many. So do you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? It's like the success rate of being, because I mean, especially for us Geordies, the be all and end all for us is be playing in the first team at Newcastle United. Yeah. And when that doesn't happen, it's heartbreaking. Like it was heartbreaking for me to leave at 24, but I, I lived a dream. But when I first went in at 17 year old, there's only me and Chops from our age group, Michael Chopper, that came through. And there and before on, and after that, I don't think Stephen Taylor was the one after that. But there was like 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, thousands, millions of players that have come to, have been through the system since that haven't made it. Well, the amount of people that go to university and try and study to be an accountant, like I said, or a personal trainer or uh, yeah. whatever it is, they become what they want to be. Mm-hmm. Like the majority, like a lot, more than 0.001% become what they want. So the mental toughness to become, to deal with failure, and then get back up and start again. It says a lot for a character of a, of a, you know, a football player or a failed football player. And I hate to say that, but like to be able yeah. to pick yourself up and then go and do something else because mm-hmm. it's a tough environment that we live in. And like you said, injuries play a part, and it's it can be really unforgiving world that I don't think many people that that haven't been in this environment really understand. They just like you said, they think. Oh, he's a footballer. He's getting paid. You know, you'll be able to deal with it. No, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. It's, yeah. it's, it's it's a false. We have a false picture of um, of the world that we live in, uh, and mm-hmm. like you said, it's a small world. It's a small bubble. But I tell you what, like if I like, I'm glad I've got two daughters, and they, they can become footballers if they want to become footballers. But I'll be encouraging them if I had a son to do anything other than be a footballer because. Mm-hmm. It's not an environment for, for weak-minded people. You've, you've got to have it. You've got to have some bollocks about you to be able to get there. But you also got to have the bollocks to be able to deal with failure, pick yourself up, and then become something else after. Mm-hmm. Football's the, probably a lot more mentally. Like, I think, it, like I talked about before, it's a lot men, more mental than I think anything else. And literally, if, you, if you're going to progress, like you're going to pursue football full-time, you're, you're almost playing the lottery with your, your own life, in a sense. <laughs> Literally, you are like you said. The chances. What's the chances of you win the lottery? What's the chances of you becoming a Premier League footballer or whatever it is? Like it's ridiculous, and all the effort that you need to put in the years and years from like the ages of like I don't know when you first start kicking the balls, five, six years old, to maybe even like getting to eighteen and getting released from the academy after your scholarship, or even sixteen, you don't get a scholarship. Like that's that's all your life, pretty much that you've dedicated to that, and getting that wiped away from you. You like you're literally at the start, and you're like. What do I do now? And then you can you, you can go down different routes, dark routes. Some people pick themselves back up, which is great to see. But look, some people it takes years for that to actually happen. And people always look back, like you talk about the guy at the pub. Like when you're seventy years old, looking back, they still say, "Oh, remember that time I was uh, I was on the bench, or I was like I trained with I don't know Johan Kabai when he was at Newcastle. I could have been in the first team, stuff like that." You see them stories because they're still thinking about it. That's still. That's still stinging in somewhere in part, in part yeah. of their life because they gave up half, like half their life at the time to that. 
which is why like you see so many young lads, even not in young lads, even lads who are coming out of football after the end of the career, like struggling. Obviously, depression's a big thing these days, mental health. Yeah. Like you see so many people struggling with it. It's because the amount of dedication, the hours that you put in to the game, and sometimes you don't you don't get in. It's like with a job like accountancy, whatever effort you put in, say you're studying for a degree, if you put the effort in, you're going to get a good degree at the end of it. If you don't put the effort in, you're not. With football, you can put all the effort in in the world. You could have an injury. You might have a manager who doesn't like you. You could just, I don't know, have what that one bad game at the wrong time and then something like your career is kind of not almost down the drain, but in a sense, it can't it can happen. Yeah, and I think, you know, just touching on that, you know, people talk about you know having the courage to battle through these things. For me, it's having the it's. I look at it, and I've got more respect for a guy who's got the courage to come to me and just say I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm listening to, uh, like I listen to a podcast with Chris Kirkland. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, like the goalkeeper, yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously he's suffered he's suffered you know quite badly with mental health uh, issues over the you know the last few years and. The big thing that he said there is that, you know, he blamed everything. His out was that, like his wife. Yeah, my wife. My wife's not well at the moment in time. I need some. T-. It was actually him that was having the problems, but he was using other people to to hide his problems. And he said the biggest courage in a person is to be able is not to hold it in and fight like the courage to fight through that problem. It's actually having the courage to just come out and say, I got a problem. Mm-hmm. I, I need help. Like, it's the biggest. Like, it's the biggest three words, and uh, I think that can be said for for somebody. Or the, the most three courageous words. I need help. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's something that I I struggled with. Like I said, um, certainly when I went to Barnsley, and you know, talking to Danny Wilson, and he would uh, was I I need help. You know, yeah. I need I need somebody to help me. I can't do this on my own. I can't. I I I didn't even tell me mom and dad. Do you know what I mean? I didn't tell me missus. I had to, and still to this day, my, my dad probably didn't really know because I still haven't kind of told him, but I needed to speak to somebody. And Chris Kirkland said that. It's just like he needed to go and speak to somebody to get himself through it. Now, he, he ended up retiring because of it because he said he just, mm-hmm. it, he just fell out of the game. But the biggest thing that he learned from it was just having the courage to be just putting his hands up. And like, he's a six foot seven goalkeeper and I've played against the big man and he's huge and he's yeah. an intimidating figure. <laughs> but somebody of that stature he can do it then anybody can do you know what i mean but it's yeah. just being brave if, if you're feeling and it might not be a, it might not be your mom and night when your dad it might be it not, might not be your mate it just might be a stranger that you need to go and talk to or it might be your mate or it might be you just have to find that person that you mm-hmm. trust that person that you can sit down and like almost break down to and just get it all out and then you can work from there and I think it's it helped me and I know for a fact that it's like even now I still have you talked about it just before I've still got my reset days that I just need to refocus it's still days where I wake up and I'm like I don't feel right here mm-hmm. you know, I just don't feel right and I've I've got my own little triggers now I've got you know you talked about there I've got a journal I write a journal yeah. myself uh, something that um it's a guy called Kevin Roberts from Sachi and Sachi. He's, you know, he went in and he built Sachi and Sachi from ground zero up. And, and his little thing in his journal every day is champions do extra. And it's yeah. that, that three words, it's just his reset. So when he writes them words, I'm right, bang, ready to go. And it's something that I say to like our guys now. And it's that have, 
find that reset, whatever it may be. You know, the reset might be going, just having a pint. Yeah. The reset, everybody's got their own different kind of resets and there's nothing that I can say to you that's going to be like, it's going to help you. It's, you've got to find that within yourself, but to be able to find it, you've got to talk to people. You've got to be able to have the courage to, to open up and be like, you know, I need help here. Mm-hmm. Um, what can I do? How did you do it? You know, what did you do? There might be something that I say to you that's going to help you go forward or it might trigger an idea that's going to help you. So it's just, but it's, it's having that courage to be able to go and do it and then having the courage to work on it and, uh, and progress from there. Yeah, I think all the stuff that you said about like the journals of people, I remember when I was little and people used to talk about this because Dave Watson was big on like, he's big into his like mindfulness and his yoga and all that, like all that hippie stuff. Like I used to think, oh, it's just hippie stuff that we're going to be doing today. Like, you know, oh, I can't remember the other course we had, Scottish, Scottish one, he was at the reserves. He was big on it as well, all about mindfulness. But like back then when I was like 16, 17, 18, I thought, oh, this is a load of crap. Like, I don't know. But you learn, like I've learned a lot that, knowing your own mind and knowing like what you're feeling like today and knowing that you need to have that and then reset days and what kind of works well for you and what doesn't work well for you knowing that like helps you so much and it also helps you help other people as well like we talk about if someone's having a bad day going up to them like oh you're all right mate like what's happening have a coffee and stuff like that like you learn but it does take time like for any young lads that are listening who are like probably thinking we're like talking about mindfulness and all this stuff like what's all this hippie sort of thing You'll learn, trust me, the older you get, it's almost like you, a little bit of wisdom that you, you get from when, when you kind of go through certain experiences. Like, I'm only 23. I'm not wise or anything by anything. You've obviously been through a lot more things, uh, more experiences in life than me, but the little things that I have been through have taught me a lot. And I think I, one of the big things that I want to try and help young lads, especially like young footballers, young athletes, young lads in general, like even young, uh, young girls in general, just anybody going through certain things. I want you to not do the mistakes that I've done because I've done them myself. I don't want you to go through what I have. In a sense, I do want you to learn from your mistakes, but I don't want you to go through what I've had just because it's not a nice thing to go through. Like injuries, I tell lads, like I was on about before, if you feel a niggle, go and see someone about it. Like don't hold it in because the worst thing you can do is just keep on playing through it. If you are struggling mentally with someone, go and talk to someone about it because the worst thing you do is leave it, leave it, leave it. It builds up in your head and then get to the point where you completely break down which is one of the big things why i start the podcast what i do on social media i try and that's what that's one of the main things i'm focusing on so but like and we I said, think that's, it's so it's, hard to, to talk that's the it is thing. it is and i think it's brilliant that what you're doing because you it's it helps when you can speak to people that have gone through what you're going through mm-hmm. because it can just kind of be I'm trying to put this, I don't know how to put this in the right way, but it's like to go through the struggles, you can, it can help people more. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like you understand what people are going through, but like if I'm going to, I've tried, I tried three or four psychologists before I, before I, um, I found the one that I wanted to because, and then one that I, I talked to was an ex-footballer, but the other ones that I was going to, I'd never been a footballer. Like they had yeah. all the degrees and had all everything and what they were saying to me was 100% right what they were saying to me but like to myself he doesn't know what I'm going through really like yeah mm-hmm. he might have had issues you know himself it's, it's ended up him being a psychologist or her psychologist but for me it's like I want to talk to somebody who's been through these issues because you can re- I can relate to you like I know when you're talking to me there's 
not only is it the professionalism um, with that, but there's also like the truth, truthness to it. So you know what I'm going through when I've been through like a long-term injury. I mean, you've had, you've had the injuries, I've had the injuries. So when somebody's coming to you, they know, so they can look you in the eye knowing that you're going through or you've been through what I'm going through. So I think that's, but some people don't, like I've known guys who don't want to talk to like people who've been in football. They want to mm-hmm. talk to like guys who have, who are interested in rugby, cricket, theatre, whatever it is. But again, it comes back to just first and foremost, having the courage to just go and seek that out. You know, and I think it's, it's great that, you know, you can pass on your wisdom and, you know, it's a big thing. I think that the people just need to, and I wish I had your mentality at 23. Do you know what I mean? After I'd done my cruciate when I was 23 at Newcastle, I wish I'd had that mindset because, like I said at the start of this, I'd, maybe my career might have gone like a different path and I could have achieved a lot more. I just didn't have the courage at that time to do what you know, you're know you doing now and, and I did later on in my career. So it's, mm-hmm. it's brilliant. And I, you know, big, I'm a massive advocate for, for people just opening up and just you know trying to help, help each other out. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think the best... The best person to speak to is someone who you don't really know at the same time, but someone who's been through what you've been through. Like, if someone, like, I think it would be easier for, like, me to go and message, to say I'm, like, I'm going through what I did go through and I'm listening to me now. And if I sit now, I, I think it'd be easier for me to just message, obviously it sounds weird, message me in the in a sense. <laughs> yeah, I know what but someone who's been through a similar thing kind of thing, like, who's, who I know has been through, who's, who's kind of a few years ahead. I was listening to something the other day, like the best person to talk to, or the best person for me to help is someone who's going through what I was, who was like kind of five years behind me. That's the best person. Like they were, I think it was to do with personal training. So like they were on about, they were um, executives in a business or something like that. And now they've transferred to full-time online coaching. Their client base, their like, their kind of, uh, their niche is people who run these big businesses and maybe you can only train two, three times a week highly stressed jobs but they want to lose a little bit of body fat because they've been through it and these people their clients who they're focused on are five years behind them that's who they're focused on and that's why they can help them so much like that's why i feel like i want to kind of set focus my attention on the kind of young athletes who are coming through who are maybe maybe even struggling with injury coping mentally or maybe the need to like build themselves up physically to to cope with the game it can be any sport it can be anything but i feel like because I know what they went through, it's probably easier for them to talk to me rather than if I'm just talking to like a random psychologist who's maybe got no experience in football. It probably is quite hard for me to like open up to them because I'm just talking. I feel like they're just nodding their head and saying yes, and they don't really understand. Yes, they understand me, but they don't truly understand what I'm going through. Yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot. There's, there's like the main thing is probably talk to people who being through similar things is the best best way to go about it like family members can be great but it's harder to talk to them about it oh 100 percent, because you've got to live with that person mm-hmm. you know what i mean you got you got to you've got to see that person day in day out the biggest thing for me is like the guy that i've seen i only see him once a week mm-hmm. sometimes twice a week and yeah. he didn't give two shits about my wife my kids in terms of like he didn't know them i didn't know him mm-hmm. but I knew, like you said, I'd done my research. I knew what he'd been through. And I thought, what is this guy could help me? But he was somebody completely new. Yeah. And you all of a sudden, like, you start talking about your wife and kids. You start talking about your mom and dad. But I, 
my mum and dad are two of the biggest influences, like I said before, my, and like they've helped me amazingly, but they couldn't have helped me through what I went through when I was injured. Yeah. They couldn't have helped me because they've got an emotional attachment to me that would have hindered probably more than helped because they had that unconditional love that they have for me and that would have been blinded and it would have been, it would have been the worst thing for me was to go to like, I could have probably gone to my dad and been like, listen, dad, because like, my dad was in, you know, an international rugby referee, so he knows endless amounts of people in that side of the game uh, or in, in a professional environment. But I needed to do this myself. I needed to, I needed to go and find that person. Like, I know that I could have gone to my dad and, and he would have helped us, but I needed to figure it out myself as well. And I think that mm-hmm. was a big thing for me was that I needed to, to do this on my own. Yes, I needed help. But I needed the help. I needed to do it on my own. And, and I'm, I, I mean, some people can't. Some people need that help to be able to, or that push in that, in that route. But part of my like, reset was having to do the work because it was like you said before, you know, you, you finished at 10, we finished at 12 o'clock. I had nothing to do. I, was not, you know, I wasn't into like, computer consoles. I never have been. In fact, I'm calling it a computer console. It just says it all. But, you know, I had to find... I had to work to find things. So it was like distractions outside of the game was helping me refocus to make sure that I was focused for the game, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I went to work and like, and like the guy, we used to, most of the time that we went for, for our sessions on the golf course, because I love playing golf and he liked playing golf. And it was a great way for us to spend, you know, three, four hours talking about what we're going through. And an environment which I absolutely loved. I love playing golf. It's if I could be a, if I could be anything other than a footballer, I would have been a golfer. But he found that within me. And whilst I never knew him, we used to go on the golf course and like, have a round and talk about things. And invariably, probably seventeen of the eighteen holes were talking about anything other than what we needed to talk to. But that one hole was all I needed. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That one hole that you know we we would talk about what I needed to do, and then somewhere it would be two holes. I feel, but I'm just using it as an analogy. But I found an environment where it was taking me away from football. I was with a person that was helping me refocus, and I found the reset. But I had to go and do it myself, as well as you know getting help, and it and it helped me. And like I said, it's, I just wish I'd at 23, like you're doing now. I wish I wish I'd done it when I was a lot younger, and it's probably one of the if not the biggest regret of my career is that I didn't seek help earlier. Right, we're back on. I had some technical difficulties, but we're back, <laughs> we're back on. So just to finish off, because I know you need to shoot off because you've got training, because you're up at, was it, was it, was it half it's, past? Oh, no, it was, 10 past six. 10 past, 10 past seven now. Nice. We've got uh, we've got our COVID testing at 7.30 and then uh, <laughs> we're on the grass at, at nine o'clock. It's, uh, I mean, now we're hitting um, peak summer, so, we, uh, we trained yesterday and it was 116 degrees, so we try to get up early and, and get out of here. Mental, isn't it? It's a different different yeah. world over there now. We're just we're, we're clinging on to some sun. So, finish off the little end q and I know you've had a little look at it. Uh, three people you would like to invite round for dinner or go out for a coffee with? It's a good question. I, um, three, one would be, I mean, I would reference it before, I love me golf, so Tiger Woods would be one. Mm-hmm. He would be, uh, you know, he, I just love watching him. I love everything about him, like how he's dealt with everything from literally such a young age and still 
and going into his 40s and winning majors. I know he had a 10-year gap, but winning a major at 40 after everything he went through, um, he would be probably number one. Uh, number two, it was, it's a good one, um, probably Cristiano Ronaldo. Again, 35, still peak of his powers. Um, probably still one of the best in the game. Yeah. And number three would be Jennifer Aniston, just because... <laughs> Just because. You know, just because. You know Friends what I mean? Fan she's, or... No, I, I, yes, I am. But she's my, uh, she's my crush. Boyhood crush. Right? Yeah, <laughs> boyhood. Boyhood, manhood, everything crush. Oh, she's just... Uh, my missus from, isn't listening, by the way. Oh, no, mate. She knows. <laughs> she knows. If she was, you know, if I walked in and she was lying there, my missus knows that, that fair, uh, fair it's... it's uh, she's got hers, but she's, she, yeah, so... And that's like mine was Zach Afron. If, Zach, if you're walking and Zach Afron's in the bed, you're just like, fair play, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, next question, three people you'd want to train with, so it could be football-wise or in the gym. Um, you know what it is? Uh, I'm not a big fan of it, but Sir Steve Redgrave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, know, I, I know very little about training, but... How he trained his body for four years to win a gold medal in a own race that probably lasted, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it was. But the four years, how, how they trained their body. Uh, you know, Matthew Pinsent and the guys uh, that did, you know, the own. i just love to see something, how they've been able to do that, how they did it. And then, you know, I've done a lot of reading after and, you know, how he had to deprogram his body. He couldn't just retire and stop or else he would have died. That's basically yeah. how he said. He had to detrain his body. So to train with somebody like that would have been incredible to see. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Tiger Woods. How does what's his daily process? Yes, I would have been loved to pick his mind. But what does he do daily to make sure that he's because golf's, you know, there's a different variation of shots that need to be played to, you know, I mean you on average you hit about 60, 70 golf balls in a round. How does he program himself to be able to Taking the, uh, the tangibles of the wind, the undulations on the green, you know, the different... Train with somebody like that. And then third and fourth was, you know, you talked about him before, was um, a guy who I've done quite a bit of research uh, in his Phil Jackson, who was, you know, the Chicago Bulls coach. How did he, and now as I'm a coach, how did he make these superstars win? You know, I mean, he's got six rings. Uh, you know, three with the Bulls, three with the Lakers. How did he? How did he get as a coach? Now, how did he train these guys to be, you know, Michael Jordan, the best guy in the world? But then, how did he deal with Dennis Rodman, yeah. Scottie Pippen, Steve Kerr? How did he get these guys? How did he train these guys? And then, how did he work himself to be able to get to them, uh, to get them stars to work? So, you know, you got doing a lot of research now, young in my career as a coach, but doing a lot of research on how these coaches get the superstars to perform day in, day out, to be able mm-hmm. to go and win championships. So they would be the three guys that you know, I'd love to see work. Yeah, just a little question that isn't on there, but I always think about like the top, top, top athletes and coaches and stuff like that. I feel like you have to turn your, change your mentality completely and almost like alienate yourself. Like I look at like, the likes of like Ronaldo and stuff like that who are literally playing like two games a week in front of millions and millions of people every single day. Like, how I don't understand how they, like, switch, how they first maintain it consistently. And second, how they switch off. Like, I don't know, like, with yourself, obviously, 
playing in St. James's Park in front of 50-odd thousand people, playing in the Premier League weekly. How did you kind of manage, like, maintaining your focus and stuff like that, but also switching off? Did you find it harder? Did you quite... Um, that was all right because I found I, I used to go for a game of golf whenever mm-hmm. I was finished. I used I I lived at Whitley Bay with my mum and dad, so me and my best mate used to go to Whitley Bay and play golf. Um, that was my that was my kind of time away. Mm-hmm. I'd go on the practice range, or I'd go on the putting green, or I'd go to you know to Gossie to Portland's and just hit a golf yeah. some golf balls at the driving range. That's that was my out, and it still is my out now. Even as a coach, now I just I'll try and go for a game of golf. It gets it gets harder as a coach with all the stuff you got to do. But that was my release was to just go for four hours, switch my phone off, mm-hmm. just have a game of golf. Yeah. Um, everybody's got their own hobbies and and interests outside. You know, some guys, the guys here, quite a lot of them are still doing their college degrees, um, and a lot of them that I've spoken to enjoy doing it because. It's a break from football, and I think it's key that whatever you're doing, you know, whether it's an office nine to five, or whether it's a, you're a professional athlete, or whether you're just like a part time or whatever, is you have an interest outside of your environment that enables you to again, you know, hit the reset. And for me, you know, it was always golf. When I moved to London, you know, I lived on my own for a year. Again. Golf was my biggest, and I had a lot of problems um, settling in London life. But golf was my um, golf was my kind of my you know my my out, my way to yeah. reset, my way to kind of refocus, and still to this day I love it. Yeah, that's the thing with football as well. Lads who are in football, they're so passionate about it. They literally football, and they get home, they're watching football all night. You didn't, I feel like lads need that. I needed that something to switch off, which is why I found the gym and number of little things. Even if it's like watching Netflix or something. You just need that time to like Correct. completely switch off. Like you, you need that the brain to relax. I'm bad for that now. Like I'm constantly like focusing on stuff like that. But I, I, my girlfriend tells me all the time I need to just even one day a week or even half a day, just switch off and just relax and forget about things. Yeah. Yeah. It'll do you better in the long term. But I know you need to get off. So last question is one thing you say to yourself five years ago, you could even go 10 years ago. Yeah, I wish, I wish I'd, um, I wish I could tell myself to stand up for myself a little bit more. Um, and I don't mean going in like we talked before about, you know, battering on the door of coaches and things like that. But, you know, having the courage to, to kind of do, a, to do more. You know, like I said earlier on, I've, I've lived my life with a countless amount of regrets. But could I, could I go back and be, you know, work through them? Could I go backwards and work through the regrets and, Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I might never have changed my path uh, in my career. I might have still had the same path, but I might be looking back now with less regrets. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So just having the courage to to work harder, having the courage to not accept um, kind of things, be a little bit more of a man before I was before I was a man. You know, mm-hmm. even going back to my time as in the academy, could I have done more? Um, so just giving myself even more of an opportunity and just saying to myself, listen, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to have the courage to do these things. You've got to, you know, you've got, when you're not feeling like we talked about before, when you're not feeling great, pick yourself up, you know, go and get your bag of balls and go and work on your left foot or go and work on your right foot or go and work on your head or go and work in the gym or even myself going talking to somebody. So I just wish I'd 
could have done more. And I would have said to my, say to myself, you know, do more, you know, do more. Don't make the endless amount of regrets at 36 that I am now. Just make it, you know, two or three regrets. Um, so that would be a big thing for me. But again, uh, who knows what would have happened? Still don't. Uh, I still don't. Uh, I still look back with a lot of pride and you know, proud of what I've achieved. But I still look back thinking, could I have done more? Yeah, you've done a lot, mate. Don't worry. Don't don't let yourself down, Mosley. You don't. You, honestly, a lot of a lot of people would love to have fifty plus games, but it just goes to show you, even when you're at that level, you, people still have regrets. Like it's it's normal to have that sort of regrets, no matter what success you have, kind of thing. So don't beat yourself. I'm bad for beating myself down on things if you didn't do things. But you're always gonna you're always gonna mess up on one or two things and look back. Oh, I could have done this, but you learn from it. Like, like we've already discussed. Yeah. But, but anyway, thank you very much for coming on, no mate. No worries, mate. No, thanks for having me. It has, mate. It has, and, uh, and good luck with everything. I'm, uh, I'm loving your uh, your Instagram videos, mate. You make, <laughs> to be honest with you, you're giving me the motivation. Literally, your body compared to <laughs> oh. mine now, mate. I'm thinking, oh my days. But that's uh, no, it's, uh, it's great to see what you're doing. I'm, it's proud. I'm, you know, obviously, when we worked in Newcastle and seeing what you were going through, so what you've done. Um, you know, post-career, it's. I wish you all the best, mate. And, uh, so, and I'm thank you, you very much if you listen to the physically and, met and, 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 and in many ways I'm one. Coming on again, nice and I'm trying, I'm trying to get there, mate. From all the slowly. other side of the world, so it's yeah. a pleasure having you on, mate. So if you did really enjoy this episode of Process, remember to share it on social media. If it's on Instagram, share it on your Instagram story. Tag myself, which is at Brendan Pearson Fitness, and tag Peter in the story as well. I'll leave his... Instagram in the show notes. So yeah, any shares would be massively appreciated. As I always say, if you can share it with one friend, one family member, or just anybody, just send in the link right now, just copy and paste it, send a screenshot, anything, that would mean the world, just to spread the word about what we're talking about. And also hopefully you can gain some knowledge from anything that we say on the podcast and obviously what the guests say. So thank you very, very much again for listening to this episode. This has been process.